7 through 21. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told often, told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, Paul's the author in Philippians, and he wrote this about 60, 65 years after the death of Christ, and it's one of his prison epistles. And uh, it, uh, he wrote it when he was in prison and, and for exercising a, a demon from a fortune-telling slave girl. So he's being persecuted for, for praying for somebody. And uh, the whole theme of, of this book is about knowing him and suffering for him and being raised with him. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great book. This is a great verse. And I want to I start off with emphasizing uh, Philippians 3.8 in the Amplified Version. Philippians 3.8. I love the Amplified because it puts lots of words in there. Uh, adjectives that that bring out the the meaning. Uh, I don't have a degree in Greek or Hebrew, so I have to rely on study Bibles to to bring that out. Um, Before I get into it too much, my goal this morning, I'm going to read a lot of scriptures, and and I, I know that you know because you're here, and Jackie preaches the word, a lot of it every Sunday, and that's that's why we're here as well. And and the word isn't just a printed, they're not just printed letters on a page, but they are life-giving words that have the ability to transform us, to change us. And so when we're reading, when I'm, when I'm reading this, um, you know, my prayer is that these words will do its intended purpose and will cut 
whichever way God wants to cut in you and, and whatever changes he wants to make, my prayer is that his word, that, that there will be words this morning that, you, that will prick your heart, that he will speak to you directly as he has to me um, in preparing this. So bear with me as we go through a, a lot of different scriptures. But in Philippians 3.8, in the Amplified, it says, But more than that, I count everything as loss compared to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with him. A joy unequaled. For his sake, I have lost everything and I consider it garbage so that I may gain Christ. You know, they say that, that uh, Christianity is all about relationship, not religion. You hear that phrase? It's all about relationship. Do you know the word relationship is not even in the Bible? I looked it up in the Strong's, and it's not there. Of course, there are, there are words that are similar to it, which I'm going to talk about. Uh, but the word itself, relationship, is not. Uh, but let me ask you a question for you to be pondering as I get into the word. What, what uh, does relationship with Jesus Christ look like to you? What does relationship look like? If you had, had to define it to someone who wanted to know, who had no idea, not, not to give them the Roman road or anything like that, but just in a personal, a very personal, practical way that they could see operating in your life, what does a relationship with Jesus look like? Now, he's a, he's a spirit, and we can't bring him up here and touch him and, and uh, look, he's a spirit. God is a spirit. And so it's difficult to define something we can't see. Uh, surely I can pray to him and talk to him, but how would, how would you define a relationship with Christ? To someone else. Be thinking about that as we go through Philippians here. How can I, you know, flesh and blood fellowship with a spirit being? Uh, spirit being. You know, if I had to parallel it with relationships that I have in this room, surely my wife and my friends have lots of friends in here. I can e- equal that. I can define it in terms of commitment, spending time with them, helping them out, them helping me out, praying for them, doing things for them, listening, counseling. There's lots of physical ways of doing it, but it's a little bit different with Jesus. And he calls us in Philippians 3.10 to know him. That's a very intimate word in the Greek, to know him. In fact, uh, it, 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 has, it has a meaning of, uh, of intimacy. It has a meaning of social intercourse. That's actually one of the meanings in the Greek, social intercourse, familiar intercourse, a very personal word. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Maybe you defined relationship with Christ as loving God. 
and loving your neighbor. That would be a good definition. Surely love sums up the whole law. Um, it can boil down to love. You know, love is a very tangible thing that we, we can measure. In many cases, it's, it's external, but it's also a, a very intense feeling as well. Uh, it's a condition of the heart. And when Jesus, Jackie taught on Luke 10 a few weeks ago, and he mentioned the story of Mary and Martha, remember that? And, and remember in verse 42, you know, Martha was the one going around getting everything done and prepared and looking good for her Savior. Uh, but Mary was doing what? She was sitting at Jesus' feet. And she was the one who got praised for doing the better thing. She was just sitting there, basking in the presence of her Savior, enjoying him. Now, I would be a Martha. I would be out fixing, making sure everything was right. The, you know, the floor was clean, everything, the food was prepared, everything looked good. Uh, I'm a Martha, just naturally. I'm a get-it-done-fix-it-up kind of guy. Uh, but that's not... That, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. We need lots of Marthas in the world. Uh, otherwise, you'd be sitting here with Jason's seed all over the place in the pews from a previous Sunday or the last movie we had and have popcorn. all. We need Marthas. But when it comes to defining the most important thing in knowing Christ, I want to share with you some things that, that I have been learning. Uh, Six years ago this month now, I retired from teaching math and science in Twin Falls School District. And the first thing I did is I asked the Lord, okay, I've got time now. I don't have, I'm not coaching anymore. I don't have four or five jobs like usual. I'm not raising our five kids anymore. They're all grown up. They're away from home. I've got time. And so I never had time before. Time was one of those things that uh, just didn't have. And so I asked the Lord, what, you know, what do you want of me during this new season of life, retirement? And he gave me Psalm 4610. And it says, the first part of it especially, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I said, well, that's great, Lord. You know, I can, I can get that done next week, and then we'll move on to the more important things, the doing things. And seven years, six years later now, seven, six years, I'm on, I'm on the be still part still. I, my goal in retirement, last night, one of my nieces asked me again, well, Uncle Phil, how's retirement going? I hate that question. What are you doing in retirement? Because it puts me on the spot because the world doesn't define our life uh, the way God does. It defines it by how much we accomplish. You know, how many things, how many organizations we belong to, all these, this checklist of stuff that we should be doing. God doesn't define it like that. He defines it by how well do we know him in the intimacy of his presence. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for me to get to know him the way that Mary knew him, 
the way that John knew him. And so I came across in looking for the answer to that question, what does a relationship look like? What, what does our, should our life look like uh, as, a, as a believer, whether it's retirement or not, whatever season of life you're in? And I came across uh, something called the Shorter Westminster Catechism. Have you ever heard of that? It was written back in the 1600s. It was the primary source of educating people in terms of becoming a Christian. That's the, that's the book they used. It's called the Shorter Westminster Catechism. It's, it's made up of 107 questions and was accompanied by scriptures. And the number one thing answers that question. What's, what is the most important thing? And it says the number one question is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He measures our relationship with him by how much we enjoy him. Not necessarily by how much we do. Surely, you know, there's rewards in heaven for things we do. But he measures relationship by how much we can be still in his presence and enjoy him. That's not my forte. i much rather do something for somebody than just sit and be still and enjoy his presence. But that's what he expects and that's what he desires. Psalm 34a says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you tasted him lately? When's the last time you sat, did nothing, and just basked in his presence? Felt the warmth of relationship with him. It's a hard thing to do in this world. There's so many things that are pulling on us. So many programs, even within the church, in ministry especially. There are so many things that are calling on us. But the number one thing, at least what God is showing me, for me, is to learn how to enjoy his presence. I glorify him by enjoying his presence. Isaiah 30:15 says For thus said the Lord God the Holy One of Israel in returning and rest you shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength in quietness and in trust shall be your strength In Nehemiah it says the joy of the Lord is our strength the joy of the Lord and how do we find his joy in his presence. That's where the joy is found. Surely we get satisfaction from doing things, and, and it's good to do things, but the real prize is his presence. There's a number of other scriptures in, in Exodus 14, 13. He tells Moses, stand still and see the salvation of God. Time and time again, he tells his people, be still, stop. Stand. Just let me be your God. Enjoy me. There's a couple of different parts of Philippians 3.10 that I want to talk about in relationship of defining knowing God in relationship with him. The first part of Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
the power of his resurrection. What's the power of his resurrection look like in our life? Well, we, we sing this. We have some great songs about his resurrection. But what's the power of his resurrection? The, the movie, I don't know if you saw the movie on Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. Anybody seen that? It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's Lee Strobel, you know, the author of Case for Christ and The Case for Faith and a bunch of other good books, uh, was not a believer. And he went on the journey of trying to prove God didn't exist by studying the historical fact of the resurrection. And guess what he found? He found Jesus. It's a fact. Historically, physically, uh, it's a fact. And through studying the history of the resurrection and the verification of it, historically, he found Jesus and, and gave, gave his life to Christ. It's a great movie, very well done, if you haven't seen it. We're familiar with the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the symbol that the cross represents, the price that he paid for us. Uh, we, we enjoy the benefits of it every day, the freedom of it. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're commanded in this pursuit of knowing him, and you know it very well as I do, that, that our problem is distraction. We get distracted. Our intent is to get to know him, and then what happens? Something comes up. Maybe it's a back surgery like Rick had. That'll take the wind out of your sails for sure. Or a personal relationship falls apart, a divorce. Uh, so many things can happen that distract us. And where, where does our mind go? It usually goes to the, the, the lowest spot instead of the highest. And so the challenge here it gives us over and over again in Scripture is to set our minds on things above. I heard James McDonald talk about this a few weeks ago, and he did an exhaustive study on it. And he said that actually what that phrase means is to, it's like you going into your garage and organizing everything in a certain way. It has the, the meaning of arranging thoughts. And that's what we have to do. We know that the word is true, but we also know that life happens and stuff happens that interfere with what we think should happen. And so we have to rearrange our thinking and set our minds on things above according to his order. And his order uh, is different than our order. My best, the way I would define it, isn't necessarily the way God defines it. Uh, walking in this victory is really what it's all about. I mean, you're just like me. You have good days and bad days. And sometimes you just, uh, you know, it's just great and you're on top of the world. And other days you're really wrestling to find, find it. And that's, that's the way we are, flesh and blood. But God says that he has given us the victory. In Luke ten nineteen, he talks about, I have given you the victory to walk on snakes and scorpions and crush them under your feet. 
Uh, he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And we quote these verses. Uh, you know, Philippians 4.8, whatever is true and noble and praiseworthy and all those things, think on these things. He tells us over and over and over again that really staying in this relationship with him that he desires of us, we have to reorganize our thoughts on a daily basis. We have to arrange them. We have to put them in proper order. And the proper order is what he defines for us, not what we feel or experience. We all know John 3.16, you can quote it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What, you know, it's not only the most quoted scripture, but what a tremendous promise we have in that. What a great verse to quote when we're in the process of arranging our thoughts, trying to get our stinking thinking in the right order. You know, our, like uh, who was it? Chuck Swindoll said, your attitude determines your altitude, and your words have a big place to play in how our attitudes are. Think about what Jesus has done for us. In Romans eight eleven. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Just think about what a blessing we have when he created us and he breathed life into us. He gave us his breath. He gave us his Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 6, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, we, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just think of it. While we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How blessed we are. 1 Corinthians fifteen, fifty-seven says, Thanks be to God who gives me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. The power of the resurrection is something we can hang on to, a promise that's going to give us eternal life with him. The second part of Philippians 3.10 is a little tougher. It's just as valuable and important, but it's a little bit harder to live. The second part says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but in the King James it says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
the fellowship of his sufferings. Or some translations say to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Seventeen times in the book of Philippians, he talks, Paul talks about suffering. And you know there's many more places throughout scripture. Suffering is part of the process of knowing Christ. In fact, I don't think you can even begin to know Christ without suffering. I think that is, in fact, the place that we really get to know who he is. For the joy set before him, what did Jesus do? He endured the cross. And he calls us to do the same thing, to fellowship in his sufferings. That word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia, and it means partnership. Along with social intercourse or familiar intercourse, it's partnership. And it has a meaning of participation. We have to fellowship in his suffering. Not sit around and feel sorry for ourselves or, or just wait, but to actually do something. There's a participation element in suffering that he calls us to do. Relationship with him demands that we fellowship in his sufferings. Romans 12, 1 and 2. A couple weeks ago I was asked, haven't done anything for six, six years since I retired in terms of speaking. And all of a sudden, bang, bang, had a chance two weeks ago. Uh, Dave Rose asked me to speak at Gooding Springs Calvary Chapel. If you've never been there, which I had never been there before, so I go over to check it out, and guess what? It's not a church building. What is it? It's the old hospital. It's the old Gooding Hospital. I say, well, this is cool. What better place to have church than an old hospital? Because guess what? Like Jackie says every week, we're broken. We're sick. We need help. We need healing. An old hospital. What a great place. And guess where, if they end up buying it, guess where their main sanctuary is going to be? In the old operating room. (laughs) That is cool. I mean, what a perfect place to have church where God can dissect us, cut away the unnecessary stuff, and heal us and give us life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is what I spoke on there. It's a great portion of scripture. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I was going to bail out and do that message on 12, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, but I just couldn't do it. I just uh, can't do the same one twice. But it's a, great, it's a great portion of Scripture, and it has some really important things here in regard to Philippians 3.10 because it tells us here what we have to do in this process of fellowshipping with Jesus and his suffering. And it tells us to make our bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. In Philippians 1.29, he goes further and says, he tells us, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but do what? 
suffer for his sake. Don't you love this message? Don't you just want to go home and say, bring it on, Lord? No, you know, we don't. None of us like to, and I'm not glorifying, you know, the the suffering part, but yet he does. I mean, that's how we glorify him is to have fellowship in his sufferings and to do it the way he did it, with joy, to embrace it. Suffer for his sake. I'm going to talk about this transformation process a little bit. Transformation is a necessary thing in order for us uh, to, be like, to become like him, which he tells us to do. We have to be transformed. Uh, to do that, in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16, we have to prepare our, ourselves and prioritize our thinking. So when stuff happens, we don't get distracted. It says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Boy, it's just so foreign for us to think of relationship with Christ by suffering. It just doesn't come natural. But the flesh has got to die. The flesh has got to die. We have to increase, as John the Baptist says, he has to increase and we have to decrease. That's the way it is. We have to be willing to make our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. So one of my good friends, uh, Dwayne Luxinger, used to always say, we have to learn how to surrender. We have to learn how to give it up. Good news in the suffering. It's not all bad. In fact, it's all good. Isaiah 61, there's many other scriptures like this. We're not doing it alone. We are doing it with him and for him and because of him. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The good news is that he's with us. He's going to empower us. To, and if, if you've not ever noticed, but some, my best times of closeness with Christ has been in, the, in a crisis. Those are the times that I can remember saying that's when I felt the closest to Christ in the hard times. And he is there and he promises promises us that he'll bind up our hearts. You know, like I said, I'm a science teacher and I sort of came to Christ. Uh, I was a Christian. I was raised in a Christian home, sort of. And... uh, 
went to church every Sunday and sort of strayed in college like a lot of kids. Uh, but I came back to Christ through really teaching science. And I started, I took all my evolution cor- courses and I was convinced I was a Christian evolutionist uh, until I really started having to answer questions from kids like Isaac back there in my science class. And, and I, had to, I had to teach origins. And then I read all the stuff in the book about all these uh, changes and how we came from the amoeba and all that stuff. And it, the evidence just started challenging me. And through teaching science, I really, my faith in Christ was maybe born I think I had a little bit before, but it was in teaching science that I really came to know him and the power that he exerts over all things, especially creation. In Romans 1.20, it says that the invisible things that he created reveals who he is. And you can't look into a microscope without seeing design and detail and purpose. You can't look in a in a telescope and not see tremendous arrangement of detail and vast, enormous. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, And so by teaching science, I I came to know him and, and I found that everything declares his glory in, in nature. And there's a word in this, I read Romans 12, one and two, and that word transformation in the Greek, he, that he's going to transform us. That word transformation is metamorphose. And it has to do with the phrase, that a word that we use in science, metamorphosis. And metamorphosis is the changing process of a caterpillar to a butterfly. And you've probably seen it or are familiar with it. But to me, that showed exactly how God takes us and changes us from the old man to the new. It's a process of change, process of stages. So I pulled up a clip here uh, that shows the process of transformation of a monarch butterfly. It's a two, two and a half minute. There's sound to it also, Rachel, if you have it. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have it. That's not necessary. But the caterpillar you know, starts crawling up. It eats the milkweed, which is poisonous to everything except the caterpillar, which is amazing. And then it starts, uh, finds a place to hang upside down here in a second. What an ugly thing, huh? Sort of like us before Christ. Hangs upside down. And this, this is time-lapse photography. It takes two to three weeks for this process to happen. And it starts the process of changing. You notice it's wiggling and shaking and stuff is happening. Scientists don't really know for sure how it happens. But the change is happening. And it starts to develop a case around it called a chrysalis. And it wiggles and jiggles and this case is formed sort of like what Jesus tells us to do to abide in me hang on I am the vine you are the branch we got to hang on to the vine but while we're hanging on notice what happens we're, we are to clothe ourselves with Christ 
And then look what happens. It starts shaking and, and it sits there. And this, in this case, it just struggles and wrestles while it's changing, sort of like we do. We resist the change. And then the transformation starts to happen. That old ugly cat, all of the parts, the internal parts of a caterpillar are liquefied. They're not reorganized, they're liquefied. They have no idea how that happens. All the parts of the caterpillar are different than the new butterfly being emerged. They're not reorganized, they're made new, just like us. And the monarch butterfly comes forth, a little shaky at first, a little bit wrinkled, but as long as nobody messes with it, it flies away. If, anybody, if you mess with a monarch in that stage before it comes out and starts flying, you'll cripple it for life. In other words, the suffering process is absolutely necessary from the old man to the new. That's what I see in that. So cool how God actually transforms us, takes us from an ugly caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold the new has come. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. But the problem is, it's not just two or three weeks, like the caterpillar to the monarch. It's from the time we are born to the time we see him. It's a long process. It takes us our whole life. In Romans 5, 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice the process, just like the caterpillar. We've got to wrestle. We've got to go through the change we can't mess with it. We can't try to avoid it. We have to embrace it. Embracing the suffering is one of the keys to having fellowship with him. In the process, we have to press on. We can't give up. We cannot. So many people give up in the middle of the suffering, and it's so tragic. What's especially tragic is that when Christians, in the middle of their struggles, give up. We have a responsibility to help in the process with our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't, we can't avoid the suffering. We can't change it. But we can surely come alongside and be with them. That process of suffering will end up eventually with that hope, that blessed hope. There's a great book that I just want to mention. In fact, I talked uh, 
uh, to the li- librarian about this book. It's called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. If you haven't, has anybody else read it? It's a great, great book. I'm the, I've read it twice through already. And he addresses the issue of embracing the suffering and how to, how to get through it in the process. He talks about the sovereignty of God, uh, God's perfect love and his infinite wisdom. And he puts it together in such a way that's really practical and helpful. And, and I, I just want to read one little paragraph here from his book on growing through adversity. He says, in the case of adversity, the energy must come from God through faith. It is God's strength, not ours, that enables us to persevere. But we lay hold of his strength through faith. He says, we, Jerry Bridges says, we cannot grow in perseverance until we have learned the lesson of dependence. We have to learn that lesson of hanging on during the struggle. We can't ever give up. Proverbs 3.5 tells that to us. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Boy, our thinking, our, our brain sure gets in the way of the process when we're wrestling with struggling. We try to figure it out. Lord, what did I do wrong? Did I do something wrong here? You know, surely we make plenty of, plenty of mistakes and cause a lot of our own suffering. But there, are, there is a type of suffering that Christ demands of us that we learn, that he gives us so that we can learn to depend on him, to give it all up, to look to him and say, Lord, here I am. Speak to me. What are you teaching me? And it may be something as simple as just be still. I want to have fellowship with you. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to be. I want you to be my child. I want you to get to know me without doing anything in the quietness of my presence. Have you been there? Have you experienced that? It's a glorious thing. It's what I desire. There was a Sunday school teacher once that had his little elementary kids memorize the 23rd Psalm. So they all went home and memorized it. One little girl came back the next week, and when he asked who wants to quote it, the little girl stood up and said, The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. Bowed and sat down. And it's that simple. That's all he wants. He wants us to want him and relationship with him more than anything else. In, the, in Psalm 23, it says, and listen to this now. Usually you hear this at funerals. And in a way, this is a funeral verse. Because he commands us time and time again to do what? Die. Die to our flesh. Be crucified with him. Die to that thing that wants to make you better. And die to that part where you are a living sacrifice. Dying for his pleasure, for his glory. It says, now listen to the places here because seven times in here, he tells us that 
It's all about him. He's the energy behind the doing. I'm not the doer in the project. He is the one who accomplishes the transformation. I have to learn to rest in him and let him do it. Listen to what he says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know what's, it's all about him? Yeah, my participation is important, partnering with him. But my participation is laying down my life, just like he did. Making my body a living sacrifice. In Psalm 4610, in the New American Standard, it has a great way of phrasing it. That part about, instead of be still, it says, cease striving and know that I am God. Boy, I get, I get in, I can get myself into a frenzy so easy. Just turn on the news for a few minutes. Before long, I'm gone. You know, there's anything but thinking about the goodness of God. He says to cease striving and know that I am God. Maybe we should have a fast from all news for one month. Have a church fast of all news. Turn off all the social media. Get rid of the newspapers, magazines, and everything, and just fix our eyes on him. I wonder if that would have any impact on us. I think it probably would. Revelation 7, 17. Another great scripture that gives us that hope that we have when we are in his presence. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will guide them to springs of living water. Now, I know I emphasized God's part in this, and I'm going to hear about it from Dave in my Wednesday morning group uh, because it's, there is a part that we pay, but our part has to be secondary. We participate. He initiates. He's the one that gives the increase. If we find ourselves anxious or worried or fearful, we're out in front. That's not the way he designed it. We're supposed to be with him, abiding in him completely submitted to him. And then he will give the increase and we'll find that place of rest in his presence. I wanted to end uh, this morning with something a little bit different and, and praying about how to, how to end this. You know, uh, we are blessed here at Calvary Chapel Buell to have a real strong emphasis on prayer. We have a bunch of different prayer groups going Howard has one. 
Uh, we have one every Wednesday night here. Uh, there's one in Twin the first Tuesday of the month. Uh, and I know we have a lot of praying people here. And I thought the Lord gave me this idea. We've talked about it at our elders' meetings recently. We have prayer counselors come forward. I, I always sit back, and I don't go forward sometimes when I, when I, I should, because the truth of the matter is, we are called in Philippians 4, in the Amplified 4, 8 or 4, 6, somewhere around there, it says to make your definite requests known. Make your definite, make your specific requests known. And one of the ways, one of the things that God has given us in his body is each other. He's given us each other to pray one for another. And we don't do that enough. I don't think we do it enough. We don't think it's important or maybe we're bashful or we don't want somebody else to know we got a problem. Uh, but I don't come forward Sunday mornings. This altar should be filled every Sunday morning because we all have struggles. If not personally that day, surely in our family. We have requests that God wants to honor. He wants to give us good gifts. He delights in giving his children good gifts. And he commands us to ask for them. Ask and it shall be given. And we don't, I, I don't think we do it enough. So I'm going, to cha- I'm going to challenge you this morning to get outside of your comfort zone a little bit. And what I'd like to do, I'm going to have Joe come, come up and, and just play quietly for a few minutes. Instead of having you come forward, we got a lot of prayer warriors in, in here. And I've talked to a number of them. And if I didn't talk to you, it doesn't matter. I want you to take a minute and I want you to think about something today that you came in with that concerned you. What was on your mind? What struggle were you having? Did you have a struggle? Are you concerned about one of your children? About a job? About finances? Let me, let me ask this way. Was there anybody in here that came in and didn't have anything on their plate they were concerned about? Raise your hand. Nothing. Your life is good. You're on a mountaintop. Everything is great. Raise your hand. Okay, that means everybody has a need. And what I want to ask you to do, and if we, you know, this is early. I let you off the hook. I mean, it's only 25 after. We got time. And I want to give God time. And for us to give him time to bless us by praying one for another. And here's the way it's going to work. I want everybody to stand right now. And I want you, if you have a need, and you don't have to confess the need, if you have something, if you want to, that's great. All I want you to do is just step out to the aisle. We got one, two, three, four aisles or some of you forwards or backwards, it doesn't matter. But step out and just, if you want to raise your hand, and I've asked a number of people, and I'll do the same, pray one for another. God asks us to do that. It's a privilege to be able to do that. But we've got to ask. So, Joe's going to play for a few minutes. I'm going to turn my...